I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Now, I do want to point out before we start this episode that there is a construction crew outside of my apartment chucking grates. I tried to explain to them that we're doing a podcast and that neither of us have set jobs, but we would prefer to do it right now. Instead, we've compromised by closing the window. And now we're here sweating our buns off, talking about books. We're a lot like... Okay, I was going to go too far. (laughs) I was going to be like, we're a lot like that reporter who got blown up in Malta because she discovered the Panama Papers. I was going to say we're like Romy and Michelle. Okay, somewhere (laughs) in between the two of them. (laughs) That's what we are. And also, while we're here, what we're doing here is a podcast where we seek the truth. Okay, so I just want to remind you before you walk further onto this path with us, if you are here for a line by line read of a celebrity memoir, We're probably not going to provide that. However, if you're here for a between the lines read, if you want to know where the truth lies. Let me tell you, if I learned anything from watching a lot of Law and Order SVU, you could get up on the high line and you can walk the normal path or you could dig in the dirt and find a dead body. And do you know what else you might find in the dirt? What? Worms. We are worms. We live in the dirt. We're finding the bodies in these books that these little memoirists didn't even know they left for us. They thought they buried them. So if you don't like that, if you don't want any critical thinking, I understand that. Live your life as a little celebrity sheep. But if you want hard-hitting, journalism, which is what I'm calling like journalish. Yeah. It's journalish ism. I would like to say welcome truthers. Yeah. <laughs> and please, if you like us, feel free to leave a five star review. And if you hate us, feel free to just, you know, try a different podcast or an audiobook even. But speaking of worm truthers who have left us a five star review, the people that we adore, the people that we owe our lives to, the people who sit here and they help us find these bodies and we admire them every day for it. They're the people who know this isn't dirt, it's fertilizer. Some may call it poop and <laughs> but we call it we call it soil and and this is where flowers come from and phoenixes. Yeah, phoenixes famously come from the dirt. <laughs> Ashes are a kind of dirt. It's like a person dirt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you to these beautiful soil dwellers. Cam's Lemons, 11345. Pixapil. Oh my God, I love you so much. Nickname Go Away, 1234566. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I wish I could have made that nickname go away for you. M. Langford X, I love you so much. M. Eerie, my God, the M Brigade is out. Haley1025, Katie McNair, oh my God, who wears short shorts, dare wear McNair. (laughs) Maureen Hobby, I love you so much. Yours, Andy Baby. Your Sandy Baby. Who's Sandy Baby? Not yours. X Drewer, love you, Drewer. A B B V H, garbage woman. Well, you're not garbage to me, unless you want to be in the garbage, and that's your chosen wormhole. And of course, speaking of wormholes, if you guys want more worm content, if you want to speak amongst your wormy little selves, join the wormhole on Facebook, which is our new private Facebook group for gossip and celeb discussions. And then, of course, we've got a Patreon for even more sizzling goss sizzling hot piping hot tea don't burn yourselves on the patreon but you know we try 
I guess now there's nothing left to do but to talk about our dumb little lives. I was going to call them our sloppy little slimy worm lives. Ew, did you pick that up from OnlyFans? No, I was just thinking it. We were talking to our friend Adrian yesterday, <laughs> and we were like, Adrian, just start an OnlyFans. You're so hot. And she goes, I couldn't do the conversations you have to have. And she's like, you have to always be like, oh, I'm a goopy little gush. Come <laughs> clean up my slop. <laughs> I wish you hadn't relayed that. So you started it when you were like, my sloppy little life. That sounds OnlyFans-ish to me okay well then please cut it out because I feel like my family could listen to this and I don't want them to think I'm like slutting for them Ashley yes Claire tell me about your sloppy little (laughs) your goo covered days bear with me this week you guys this week I'm going to call my memoir practicing what I preach I've been working really hard on not caring about being in a relationship and I do think it's really really important to be happy with yourself single and I think that that's an obnoxious thing to say because overall as someone who's been single now for almost a full year it is just like nice to have someone whenever people are like no love yourself you don't need to be in a relationship to be happy when people say that they are lying but they are telling the truth they're coming from a place of lies but their sentiment is correct I think that you don't need a relationship to be happy it is just like nice to have someone and so getting over that is kind of difficult well I think if you're unhappy fame won't make you happy and if you are unhappy sitting alone you're not going to find someone who suddenly likes you enough to make you like yourself like a relationship can't fix the holes but it, it could add value yeah you don't need a relationship to complete you and I've done a lot of work just being like okay like I am in a place right now where I think it'd be nice to be in a relationship but I don't need one but I have some friends who are in relationships that I vehemently disagree with and they're starting to escalate I have a couple friends who are on my side that we think that there needs to be a lot more thought that goes into this but where I come from it is really really a mark of success to be married and to like move to the suburbs and to like buy a house and have a baby and all this shit people will look so far the other way to relationships that aren't working because it's such a mark of success to be in a relationship and the way that people talk about these relationships like I have pointed out my concerns about one of these relationships several several times and a lot of the adults in my life will be like like, well, it's nice that she has someone or something like that. And it's like, it is not nice that she has someone. It's nice for her to be happy. We want her to be happy. And she needs to know that she's valid as an individual because if she's in this relationship, just because everyone around her is like, well, at least she's not alone. That's really bad. We're sending a really bad message to her by like encouraging this toxic relationship because she's simply not alone. And that's a great success in itself. That's not a success. And I am obviously a fucking hypocrite because if you have been listening since we're in a fight, you know that I've been in like a pretty bad relationship just because I like didn't want to be alone and I have done a lot of work on myself to be like this is not the thing don't do that I do (laughs) want to say to your credit whenever I'd be like I don't think you should be in this relationship your sticking point was well I know I would never marry I want to be in a relationship right now I would never let this get out of control and take over my life yeah and that way you have not at all been a hypocrite because your big point was that you're like well I would never marry this guy I'm too unhappy yeah like but I'm scared my friend is gonna marry this guy and now they're about to get engaged so you're exactly right why yours was allowed to continue but hers should not (laughs) and it's not even that hers like cannot it's just really stressing me out the way that everyone in my life seems to be so flippant about something that seems very toxic to me just because she's achieving the thing that is what they've all deemed the greatest success of all time. It just really feels bad in terms of practicing what I preach. Like, obviously, I need to really be okay with myself being single. Like, I can't be sitting here being like, she needs to be happy alone. I wish I had a boyfriend. But also, 
I feel like I need to do a good job of expressing that outwards. And so I wanted to talk about it on the podcast this week because any of you wormies, I really want you to know that if you're single and you don't want to be, wait for the right person. And I think that there's like so much value put on a wedding over a marriage yes this idea that the rush to the altar is such an incredible mark of success and it's like no finding a good partner that you make it down the road with and not just abstaining from divorce they're not gonna be like oh divorce is horrible but the idea of like actually finding a marriage that supports you for 50 years that should be the success not necessarily just like locking a man down and proving you could do it and getting your big party in your dress and I've like felt sad thinking about the fact that I do think eventually I'll find someone I just turned 30 you guys know that I'm as good as dead (laughs) but I don't know what if I don't meet someone until I'm like kind of old and then we never have a family or whatever it does suck thinking about it but I would rather do that than be in a relationship that isn't the right one and so I have to just buckle up and be like listen this shit just doesn't happen overnight all my friends who are in relationships that I admire they didn't force anything except you I guess oh yeah I I mean well (laughs) you really held a knife against his throat and said you're my boyfriend listen the way that a river cuts through the stone you just keep passing and passing and passing and you wear it down slowly baby (laughs) that's why I wanted to talk about it this week because if anyone needs to hear that wait just wait that's what I want people to know. I almost think it's easier to go it alone than to have an anchor around your neck because an unsupportive boyfriend or like a bad boyfriend who doesn't like you, it's such a fucking energy suck and it holds you back from yeah. so much. Because I grew up in a suburban town where most of the moms worked. My mom worked. There was this real encouragement for girls go get a career and like be self-sufficient mm-hmm. and all that shit. Everyone would make fun of in their day. Everyone would go to college to get their MRS. We were going out forging our own careers and my mom was always like oh I'm very impressed with the way you've accomplished these things and then now all of a sudden it's really seeing it clarify how important they view marriage I'm just like okay did I fuck up were you lying you didn't actually want like I worked too hard on my career you didn't actually want me to do that what's happening (laughs) it was really clarified last week I talked about how like we had some really good podcast accomplishments we got a Mm -hmm. fuck ton of press I was just thinking about the fact the way that people come out of the fucking woodwork to be excited over marriages but I've been you know working so hard at comedy and all this shit for so long now we were in multiple well-regarded publications and crickets so (laughs) no I get that it was just one of those things where like especially combined with today when everyone was like well just be happy for them you have to be happy for them I was like no I don't I don't actually think they're accomplishing anything I think settling is not something that I'm that excited for Sorry that I'm not happy for that. <laughs> Dude, I fucking support you. Thank I you. support you 100%. Anyway, Claire. Yeah. What would you title your memoir this week? Fly in the ointment. <laughs> My fly in the ointment is the fucking bodega you live on top of. Oh, it's like not good. She lives on top of this grocery store that has actually no food in it. It's really bizarre. You walk in there and you're like, I hope for the love of God I can get a chip today. You wanted a Diet Coke the other day and I went through and they had three aisles. They had a refrigerated section, another refrigerated section, and an aisle dedicated to soda and then just like boxes of extra soda and not one was a Diet Coke. Here's what got me on my way here. So I went to the grocery store bodega Armageddon flop house that you live on top of. <laughs> And I went to look for like their pastries, a package of donuts or something simple, a Cinnabon, anything, a ho-ho, a ding-dong, a Twinkie, First of all, I will say I do know where that stuff lives in that bodega and behind a wall of avocados that are not ripe. They've never been ripe. And then 
everything back there has been there since like the late 80s. I was craving so badly anything sweet and kind of carb based. Okay. And they had these croissants. (laughs) And the photo on the package looked like a hot dog, actually. (laughs) They were like chocolate croissants where the amount of chocolate in them was thick like a hot dog would be. And then the croissant itself was just a bun around the chocolate dog. And I was just like, I can't. And I left. I just wanted a blueberry muffin. I don't know why that's too much to ask in New York City. It's a lot to ask in New York City. They love to put together like a fucking vegan blueberry muffin around here. And you're just like, stop doing that. I want real blueberries with meat in them. (laughs) So that's my life. I mean, it's not too interesting, but I think it needed to be said. Should we get into our memoirist this week? Let's get busy. (laughs) What did you know about her before we read this? Honestly, a lot. I don't know anything about her except for all these like side pieces and info that I've heard from you through the years. I had watched Freaks and Geeks in college one time and binged it. I never thought too much about her, but she's just always been a name that's been around. And she seems like a real personality gal. I feel like that's the PC way to say. Loud. What I'm thinking. Well, just. Busy. You know. She's Annoying. She's got a real personality. She always seemed like a step down from a girl who wasn't pretty enough to be an actress, so she had to become a comedian. But somehow she wasn't funny enough to be a comedian, so she had to stay an actress. And that's kind of what I thought of her. I didn't know much. I've been like kind of a fan of her, but not her personal life. I was never that into her Instagram renaissance when all of a sudden everyone cared about her personality. And I didn't really care about her TV show, which I know seems rude, but I've been like a fan of her work. I loved Freaks and Geeks. I loved Cougar Town. I really think it's one of the more underrated sitcoms. But I will say her personality part, like I've never really been that interested in it. Well, I mean, I guess there's nothing to do but hear from Busy herself. From the lips of Phillips. Oh, she should have called it that. I actually think that there were a lot of better titles than This Will Only Hurt a Little. I actually hate that title. I think it really does the book the opposite of justice. I agree with that. I think that she should have called it from Busy Phillips's Little Lips. (laughs) (laughs) So there's one thing that I do want to say before we really get into this book. One little feature. I don't think the cover is that important. I think the title is not that good. She does title every single chapter the name of a song that kind of relates to either that time period or the contents of that chapter. And that is the exact thing that my basic bitch wannabe rocker chick will just lick out of the palm of someone's hand. I loved it. I was like, I can't get enough of this. All right. Let's lick these lips, huh? (laughs) I wish you hadn't said that. So let's start. The way Busy starts, with an intro. Once, a former guy friend of mine who happens to be gorgeous and famous and all of the things said to me, you know, I think people would consider you really beautiful if only you didn't talk so much. Your personality is just a lot. So this is interesting because you were saying in your pre-notions of Busy Phillips that she was a lot. Also, I do think that she's not Hollywood beautiful. He could say her personality keeps her from being seen as beautiful, but I actually think her personality is why she's in the room. So she kind of talks in the preface a lot about her experience being too much, specifically as a woman in Hollywood, compared to watching what seems to be men's experience, which is acting badly, being given a pass, and then getting to level up time and time again, where you're then given bigger passes and then permission to act even worse. It ends with her talking about how when she 
started doing Instagram stories. She felt like it was the first time in her life she got to be her true self and watching people really connect with that after being told in Hollywood that her true self was the thing holding her back. And told throughout her life. I think that she had never been told before that her full self was appreciated. It's funny because she didn't get famous being an actress. She got famous for being a personality on Instagram stories. Yeah. But she then gets into the next chapter, which is what she calls her defining narrative. Yes. She says that her therapist thinks that everybody has a defining story, the story that basically sums up who they are and why they are the way they are. And I also want to point out that she names her therapist. And that's like such a weird common trope these days. And Busy does name names a lot in this book, which I appreciate endlessly. But I think that it's so weirdly common for everyone to be first and last naming their therapist as like a conversational beat and I find it so strange. (laughs) Her essential story is that when she was two years old, she went missing and she had just like walked out of the house and around the block. And in her mom's perspective, it's story of that's busy. You can never hold her back. She was ready to explore the world from the time she was two years old. She just aced out in her nudes. (laughs) All she had on was a diaper and she just wanted to see the world. And instead, Busy takes this as like a really sad story about how nobody was watching her and nobody even noticed that she was missing and how she's always left out and not cared about. She said, it's funny that FOMO has become a thing people say because my feeling left out and alone obviously has deep roots. It's real and it hurts if you're someone who has always felt left out, which I have. It's a reoccurring theme in my life. It is a reoccurring theme in her life. Like we see a lot of it throughout this book of this deep feeling of loneliness. And I have to say this chapter kind of gives us something that we really get mad at other memoirs for not having. She literally says, these are my memories as I remember them, as I see them, as they've affected me. But that's not to say it's the whole truth or even what the full story would be if you were to track down the star witnesses in my life and ask their impressions of said stories. And then she also says, look, I'm a storyteller. My mom's a storyteller. Storytellers know that sometimes you have to embellish to make a story good. Yeah. And she also admits that sometimes she's been a glass half empty kind of girl. The result of this acknowledgement and the way she wrote, this book was genuinely a page turner for me. There were some stories where I was like, what the fuck is going to happen next? Like she tells these stories well. And I like it because there are a lot of acknowledgements that listen being angry at your mom when you're 13 doesn't necessarily mean that you had a bad childhood. Yeah. So she talks a lot about her relationship with her mom. It seems to me that she still has a lot of resentment towards her mom. Basically, the relationship she has with her mom is her mom is somebody who's kind of dramatic and always like, oh, busy, you're so much. She had an older sister who seemed very dramatic. And she even says, for years, my own narrative of my childhood was that my sister was the one with the problem and we were all just swirling around her trying to stay above water. Yet I had anxiety for as long as I could remember. I found this book to be like fairly forgiving of the mom, especially as times and life circumstances go on. But the sister definitely got a tough edit in this book. I don't think the mom did anything wrong but be funny. Yeah. And I also think that there are shining moments where I think she was actually a great mom. I think like the big things Busy is mad about is like an example is when she tells the story of giving birth to her two daughters Her dog died right around the time Busy was born. And so I guess she tells some joke where she's like, the dog took one look at Busy, decided that he couldn't handle it and just laid down dead. And Busy's like, it's not even true. The dog died months before I was born. They put him down. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, Busy. She's making a joke. And then when she talks about how my sister was born, I guess it was a really difficult birth. So the mom always jokes like the first one almost killed me and then the second one killed my dog. And Busy really takes this to heart to be like, I don't know that my mom loves me. I killed her dog. And it's like busy for someone who considers herself a little comedian. You got to recognize a joke when you can. And then the other thing she gets mad at her mom about her mom had grown up and wanted to be an actress. And her parents have said, no, that's impractical. But then her little sister was allowed to go on and be an artist, a fine artist. And that felt very unfair to her mother. So her mother took great pains to make sure everything was equal between the two sisters. 
And this is laughed at as if it's the most preposterous fucked up thing a parent could do is try to be equal to both children. Yeah. Like her older sister had gotten headshots at one point. So then they're like, yeah, we'll buy busy headshots because we just got some for your sister. And she goes, you know, because everything had to be equal. And I'm just like, I don't know why you're acting like that's a bad thing. That feels like a very decent parenting tip. She even calls out that her sister got her ears pierced at a certain age. And so then she couldn't get her ears pierced until that age because everything had to be equal. And that was very funny to me because that happened in my family. I got my ears pierced, I think, when I was eight. And I'm the oldest cousin. And no one else in my family could get their ears pierced until they were eight. It was like a literal like eight birthday rite of passage that you could get your ears pierced because that's just like when I arbitrarily pierced my ears and it just became a thing so her viewing it as this slight where in my family it just kind of was what it was the opposite ends up much worse when one child is clearly favorited or when they're really strict with the older one and then really lenient with like trust me that would have come back twice as bad so this idea that she's so mad that everything was equal. Also, they were just so blatantly not strict with her when we get into her teen years. So that's basically her childhood. They moved to Arizona when she's about four. Otherwise, I mean, it feels like, you know, nuclear family, two parents, two kids, regular, regular schmegular stuff. I would like to point out that she has some random dramas at school. She talks about her best friends. She talks about this one guy who was pretty mean to her at one point. And she does not shy away from a first and last name at any point throughout this entire book. And I find that to be very fun. I love when it's not just like a boy at school who was a dick to me. It's Scott Bell was a cunt. And I'm like, I fucking hope Scott Bell is reading this now. So this is one of those things that I actually disagree with. Okay. Really? If it's egregious, go by all means. Like later the teen boys and the way those teen boys treated her, let them fucking feel humiliated till the day they die. What Scott Bell did was in sixth grade, Busy dislocated her knee at a school dance and apparently they were talking in school government that if Busy's parents sue the school, they can't have school dances again. And he went up to her and he was like, don't sue the school. If you sue the school, we'll never get to have a school dance again. And this is just a 12 year old boy who had been scared by teachers into thinking that they would never get to have fun again because of this one girl. I don't think that that's like that bad of a thing to do. I actually will agree. Okay, I take back calling out Scott Bell because later Scott Bell also works in Los Angeles and she's at her agent's office and someone comes in and is like, oh my God, Busy Phillips, I know someone who's friends with you and a bunch of your high school friends. And she goes, oh, who? And they're like, Scott Bell. And she's like, I fucking hate Scott Bell. He's gay. (laughs) And then she's like, Scott Bell's my fiance. (laughs) So I actually will say Busy was in the wrong on this one. But some of the other name call outs, I agree with the high school boys who were awful to Busy, I think should be called out. And the entertainment industry people that were called out, I do think should be called out. The middle schoolers who were just hoping to dance someday. (laughs) Maybe he is gay. He was a middle school boy. He just wanted to dance. (laughs) She's obviously deeply sensitive. She also has a tough relationship with her sister. Aside from this all things equal thing, her sister is apparently would just throw these like wretched tantrums. It was like a family issue. I think they both were just like very high strung dramatic people. I don't know that the sister was worse than busy. They didn't get along. They were four years apart. They did not get along and they wouldn't get along until busy had her first baby. So let's fast forward to high school, shall we? So busy, I guess, starting in seventh grade on is hanging out with these girls. She loves a skater boy. Very stuff I could relate to. I used to hang out at the skate park. I remember me and my friend Casey would go down to the skate park and hang out. And one time my mom was like, Claire, if you're going to go to the skate park every day, why don't you at least try skating? It's like so embarrassing to be seventh grade and just like watching these boys. My mom like dropped us off at the skate park and I'll never forget. Casey pushed me down the half pipe. I immediately busted my eye open. And my mom had just pulled back up to be like, wait, our insurance didn't go through. Like there was something wrong with our insurance that month. So she had turned around to immediately be like, don't do it. And I was like already walking out of the park bloodied. 
they were boy crazy. They would hang out at the skate park. There was a group of girls. They were always smoking cigarettes and like sneaking alcohol and flirting with boys. And boys that were much older. Yeah. So they were in like seventh, eighth grade. And these boys, I think, were junior seniors in high school. And they would meet at the mall and stuff and kind of lie to get to go to parties. So there was three girls. And then there was like these three guys that they just like matched up with. It was just like a who's going to pick who. It wasn't like anybody actually liked anybody else. So Busy ended up kind of matched with this guy who was 17. One weekend, her parents left town to drive her sister to school and they found a neighbor's daughter who was 21 to come babysit busy and apparently the neighbor's daughter was just like well I, I assume you would have people over that's fine which is not fine busy has these three guys over and her friends over and she makes out with the first guy that she likes i think he senses that she's way too drunk she's like 13 14 and way too drunk so he leaves and one of her friends has the guy she's matched with come and like she's so drunk and he takes her shirt off and makes out with her and the friend is laughing like i don't know it felt very abusive abusive but in that way that i knew a girl who's just trying so hard to get a guy to like her that she would like laughingly assault her own friend for his benefit it was painful to read it's like too real so then this guy ends up not really being into her at all like they don't really talk but then one of the other guys so the third guy who's was originally partnered up with a friend who was a year older than them when that friend went to high school she kind of ditches them so there's like a, a floating boy left and he kind of calls her out of the blue and the other friend is like you can't date him that's our friend's guy so gross and busy like who cares she ignored us and really she's just happy to have any attention at all which yeah. is relatable she's like i feel like the one i wanted didn't want me back it feels so good to be wanted. In so she ends up going out with this guy and he rapes her. So they're like at a football game and he comes and he basically is like, I want to get out of here. I mean, he must be 17, 18 at this point and she's 14. Yeah. And he just takes her in a car and basically rapes her. You know what I mean? Like she's with him. But at one point she says, I don't think it's going to work. There's no like consent. It's very brutal and vicious. She goes home and like she has terrible rug burn on her back from the carpet in the car and she's bleeding and it's obviously horrible but she's 14 and doesn't know what to do and is like well we had sex that must mean I love him so she's like desperately calling him all the time she talks about one other time they meet up and she like gives him a blowjob in an alley and so then it was so hard for her to come to terms with the fact that this was not consensual and that it was assault because she was like I was obsessed with him I met up with him again and like gave him a blowjob at one point she calls him and was like oh I don't know maybe we could try again or something and he goes how do you think it was for me it was like fucking a brick wall yeah I really admire her for writing about it with the detail she did although be warned triggered warned but she so accurately describes that kind of mind fuck that you do to yourself we were like it was my fault I got in his car oh my god you could not not enough money in the world to be a 14 year old girl it is too painful <laughs> That's not good. Anyway, she finally breaks up with Trey and then has a crush. Well, breaks up with Trey. (laughs) Okay, so she moves on to this guy, Ben, who makes her feel very seen. He has a girlfriend at the time, but he has this flirtation with Busy and they always talk on the phone. And then one day he finally breaks up with this girlfriend and they like make out and it's this whole thing. And she feels very sought after in this way. They start doing it I mean, they do wait until their official boyfriend girlfriend they've been dating for a summer she feels like it really means something and they are not using protection and she does mention what if i get pregnant and he's like oh that doesn't happen what are you talking about and then she goes but it did happen and i already knew that i was pregnant so she goes she gets a test she is of course pregnant 
Busy goes to her boyfriend and she's like, well, we're obviously going to abort this. So her boyfriend says he'll pull the money together. She comes back from Planned Parenthood and is like, okay, it's going to be like $300 or whatever. And I guess he just asks his parents for the money or something. Somehow his parents find out and I can't imagine how they would have found out unless he had just gone home and been like, here's what's happening. <laughs> he says, Busy, you have to come over. I told my parents and my mom wants to talk to you. And if you don't come over, they're going to call your parents. Right. So Busy goes over and the mom basically like tells her she's going to hell and she's evil and she has to keep the baby the mom literally says enough benjamin you have nothing to do with this i'm sorry busy but you cannot kill this child i won't let you murder a baby to say benjamin had nothing to do with this fuck off you idiot so she goes home her parents are asleep she's in her bed crying she gets woken up at 3 a.m by her mom and her mom goes look i have to tell you something when you were out we read your diary is it true this is the one where i'm like Okay, this is a, a point in the bad parenting book. You don't read a diary. I agree. But I also do think like, thank God they did. Yes. I think it was so clear to them probably that their daughter was spiraling out of control because she was smoking cigarettes and getting pregnant mm -hmm. and crying all the time. And she's talking about how she's just constantly weeping. Yeah. I feel like as a parent, you know, when something's normal wrong, like high school is hard. And then when something's life wrong, like I need an abortion. I was just told by my boyfriend's parents that I'm going to hell. Yeah, I agree that I'm glad they did. I just think that it's it really makes me nervous when a parent I just it's private anyway but thank god she did because then she comes and she's like we're gonna take care of this it's not a problem so the mom says you're not gonna go to the clinic we're gonna get you like a good private doctor where we know that you'll be cared for she calls Ben's mom and chews her the fuck out I mean the mom literally calls and says quite frankly I don't think intimidating a scared 15 year old by telling her she's going to hell is a very Christian thing to do and it's just like get them bitch <laughs> and then her mom takes care of her and helps her out and helps her through his abortion. And of course, we barely hear from Ben again. So he ditches Busy, basically. And so Busy goes on to date another guy. And I guess that guy's kind of claimed by another girl. So there's, I don't know, there's some giant high school tete-a-tete -tete happens where a bunch of girls who are all dating, more or less the same guys, all have to meet up at a diner and hash it out. And Busy at this point says, well, after my abortion, and the girls stop. They go, wait, you had an abortion? And she's like, yeah, with Ben. So then it comes out that Samantha, who was Ben's previous girlfriend before Busy, they broke up right when Samantha had also had an abortion. So this boy, Ben, in high school, got two girls pregnant four months apart. They both had to get abortions. And apparently Ben's mom is out there telling these girls it's all their fault and they're going to hell. Horrible. And then let's talk about what he says when she calls him. Yeah. She says, did Samantha have an abortion like when we started dating, like four months before I had one? And he said, what the fuck, Busy? Yeah, I guess. So what? And she says, so what? So you got me pregnant like three months later? And he said, well, what can I say? My family were Vikings. I have strong sperm. Whatever, Busy. Prove that it was mine. See, that's the name you call out. That's the family you fucking name holy. Ben, if you're listening go fuck yourself and Ben if you're listening from hell glad you're right where you belong idiot <laughs> so the rest of the chapter is about how hard it was obviously in the wake of this abortion she was raised Catholic I mean she is a 15 year old girl I'm obviously very pro-choice but I do feel like I don't know it's an emotional upsetting thing to have to go through and it is very difficult for her and then it has kind of this beautiful poetic ending where the summer after her 10th grade year her parents let her go to Europe on a class trip for two weeks and they go to the Vatican and somehow she's at the Vatican the same day as the Pope and she tries to go in and see him and she like breaks through the crowd and some woman goes, you need this more than I do and lets her cut and she trips and falls on her floor. When she comes up, she's face to face with the Pope and he looks at her and takes her face in his hands and says, I love you. You are loved. And she was like, in that moment, I felt 
so absolved of any guilt. I was loved and it was okay. And I just feel like that's a really beautiful. Uh, yeah. Like I'm so happy she had that piece. So now let's talk about when Busy just gets struck by the bug. The acting bug. I think this is a really honest statement. She said she was 100% hooked on the love of performing, but I think the recognition was more important. As someone who felt often unseen, I think that it is really unique to be able to acknowledge that she loves acting, but she especially loves being the center of attention. So she wants to become an actress. She's living in Scottsdale. And actually, very interestingly enough, she talks about how she had a friend whose mom became her manager and She's like, my parents were not going to be what it took for you to be a successful child actress, which is one of your parents quits their job, full time becomes your manager. You move to L.A. You live in those shitty little out of town child acting apartment. Oakwoods, bitch. <laughs> yeah, your former home. And you just dedicate your life to like trying to make your child break into the industry. But she was like, my mom did get me a manager locally. So basically her impetus for getting an agent the thing that felt most important to her because her parents told her that she had to do at least two years of college before she become an actress. But then she hears on the radio that they're adapting the movie Clueless into a TV show. And she's like, for the love of God, I have to be share on that show. So she like really steps on the gas. She gets this local agent and she's like, the first thing I want to do is be share on TV. And her agent's like, I'll see who I can call. But obviously, first of all, probably if you're hearing about it on the radio, they're probably saying it's airing next week. Second of all, this Scottsdale agent is not going to get you on TV, but she does get her into this toy show where they're making a shared doll and she gets to play the shared doll at the toy show. <laughs> and that to her is like just as good. And she crushes it. She has a really intense script and there's all these models who are brought in from LA to be the Barbies and busy is the share doll. And she does so good that for the big New York convention, they fly her out to reprise her role as Cher Doll. And this is her first taste of true acting success. She's dating this guy named Craig at the time, who she thinks is just the sweetest little sweetie PD. He's in her like acting club and he's a year younger than her. And he's compared to all the D bags she's dated. He is just an angel. But then in New York, she like hangs out with his brother and makes out with him. And she's like, I, I see that that was bad. She loves a, a makeout sesh while she's otherwise engaged. But so yeah, she had gone out drinking with him and they made out and they come back and Craig is like, I could never forgive you. And then of course a week later he forgives her. But I just also want to point out that this is the first of many references to the CPK. One of my favorite restaurants, the California pizza kitchen. I love a California pizza kitchen. California pizza kitchen. I don't know if they paid for this book. Was it product placement? It comes up constantly. It's like, she works here now. Later, Craig works there. At one point when she's doing Dawson and Creek, not to get too ahead of myself, she's picking up CPK every time she goes into the... Charlotte Airport. And she's like, it was me and Michelle Williams' favorite salad. And I was like, was it? Okay, can I say that I've had that salad and I will vouch for it? <laughs> and it is one where you're like, I do think that a California pizza kitchen, I think it was, was it the Asian chicken salad? Probably. They also do a really good one at Panera Bread that used to be a lot better and then they changed the ingredients and I've tweeted at Panera Bread about it. I just I don't do understand. Think every now and then there's a salad with a good amount of like citrus and chicken and crunch and lettuce and you're just like, I'm sorry, but I will go to the ends of the earth for this motherfucking salad and CPK has one. I mean, and she she didn't go to the ends of the earth, but she went to like both ends of America. Douglas International I mean, Airport. she worked there in Scottsdale. Craig worked there in LA and then she was picking it up in North Carolina. We have now traversed all of the major sections of this country. 
So her and Craig are on and off. She finally graduates high school. And she decides to go to Loyola Marymount University because it is the only Los Angeles area college that she has the grades for. For some reason, she decides to apply to Loyola Marymount in person. She's in the admissions office. Nobody's there. And some man pops his head out and goes, may I help you? And she's like, I'm just dropping this off. And he goes, great. Save some postage. And then she goes, have I talked about being a sparkly human yet? Well, I have a theory. There are certain people who are what I call sparkly humans. These are people who have things just happen for them or to them because other people see them and seemingly inexplicably want to help them because they sparkle from the inside out. And I was always a sparkly human. I really liked this book and I really liked Busy throughout most of it. I think this was the most unlikable chunk of the book. Sparkly person is called privileged idiot. Like, <laughs> I disagree. And I think it also was like a hard pill to swallow. And I like the roller coaster of emotions where at first I was like, fuck you. And then I was like, I actually... I agree with the sentiment. And I do think there are people that people just look at and they like want to help. But I think that there's like a lot of research behind them being just like conventionally attractive, but like not threatening looking people. I don't know that it's an aura thing. I think it is entirely just that she's pretty, but not too pretty and perky. And yeah, I don't that's know. A, I mean, I do think that there are people that just... I don't know that I'm sparkly. Would you say you're sparkly? No. I would say I'm like a conventionally attractive, but not too pretty like person who's had every privilege. I don't know that I've ever gone through life feeling like people just want to help me out. And that's not an oh, poor me thing. But I do think that there is a certain person, like a charismatic person. And for whatever reason, people just like them. And I felt like this was actually unlikable, but honest and just like true. And I do think when you read the rest of the book... She had a psycho amount of success for somebody who actually hasn't blown up that big. She has never struggled too hard. She went to L.A., handed in her application. And so ultimately, this guy ended up being the head of admissions at LMU and accepted her on the spot. Yeah. I mean, that is just like a lucky thing to happen. And I don't know that that would have happened to me. It wouldn't have. I don't think it would have happened to most people. I guess I agree with you. I won't I won't concede that it. I, it's a really unlikable chunk, but I do think it's really honest. I think it's unlikable, but I think it's honest. And I think like the more I thought about it, the more I appreciated that she was just like things have worked out. And I do think that is a type of person. And to be honest about it is like more helpful than not. Like I wouldn't say Tori Spelling, who is one of the most privileged people on earth. I wouldn't say she's sparkly. Okay. So she gets to LMU. She meets Colin Hanks, son of the father of Colin Hanks and brother of Chet Hanks. It's a pretty big deal. They break up with their home partner. So that's Busy Phillips breaks up with Craig to be with Chet Hanks' brother, <laughs> Colin. She also lands an agent and a manager pretty quickly and takes a lot of pride in the fact that this agent was like, I'm not just going to sign a pretty girl who can hit a mark. You have to be able to act. And she is getting sent out on a lot of auditions pretty immediately. She's semi-juggling school and all these auditions. And then that pilot season, she went out for a bunch of pilots. She was cast in a table read of a Noah Baumbach pilot that didn't ultimately get picked up, but was like such a big deal to her because Noah Baumbach had been her favorite director. Yes. That didn't get picked up, but from it, she got a general meeting with a woman at NBC who then thought she was perfect for Freaks and Geeks. The next week, she auditioned for Freaks and Geeks, and although she didn't get the main character, Lindsay Weir, they, of course, cast her as Kim Kelly. Yes. The actress who was cast to play Lindsay Weir, Linda Cardinelli, also had gone to LMU and was like infamous because she had taken a year off to work full time. She ran into Linda and Linda was like, oh my God, you have to be Kim Kelly. And so it is cute knowing that they had this friendship. I had no idea. Me neither. And then Colin Hanks got Roswell. They both got busy with each other and with their careers. And um, things were looking pretty good for a minute. I think they ultimately break up at that point because they were both so busy. They didn't have time for each other. But this is where she gets into the freaks and geeks 
drama. drama that we were all hoping. She talks immediately about how it was like a really fun cast and they did have so much fun together. Seth Rogen was sweet and laughed a lot. Jason Siegel acted like an old pro because he had been in two movies already. But James Franco was weird and intense. His whole vibe was both annoyed and intimidated me. She talks a lot about how James Franco clearly thought he was more important than everybody else, thought he was smarter than everybody else. She says he would walk around set with Dante's Inferno under his arm, which is really disgusting. So when they come back to shoot the series after having gotten picked up, she said Franco had come back from our few months off and was clearly set on being a very serious actor. Not that he wasn't before, but it felt like over the summer he had read Easy Rider's Raging Bull or something and had decided that the only way to be taken seriously was to be a fucking prick. This is another one where I'm really happy that she calls it out so hard. And like we were talking about earlier, this thing where men are given chance upon chance upon chance. She says most of the time men who do this get away with it. And most of the time they're rewarded because ultimately they get to give the performance they want to give. She talks extensively about how his bullshit stepped on everyone around him. Like her performance was worse because he was trying to be such a genius actor. Apparently they were supposed to do an entertainment tonight interview. And he goes, does De Niro do entertainment tonight? And it's like, I don't, do you think you're De Niro? You're a teen on a teen show that got canceled after one season. I know it's a cult classic now, but at the time it was a failure TV show. So in the show, Kim Kelly, which is busy Phillips's character and James Franco's character, they're dating for most of the series. And so there's this part where they're supposed to be hit by balloons and they run after a car. And the director says, hit him on the chest and say, damn it, Daniel, do something. So she hits him on the chest and says, damn it, Daniel, do something. And he did not say his line in response. Instead, he grabbed both my arms and screamed in my face, don't ever touch me again. And he threw me to the ground, flat on my back, wind knocked out of me. Immediately, I could feel the wet, hot stinging of tears. But I tried like hell to suck them back in. He stormed off to the bathroom to change as the AD and cameraman and my makeup artist rushed over to help me and see if I was okay. So then she has to do the scene again because I have to catch it. The way that everyone else just kind of was like, oh yeah, got to be careful about him. There were no repercussions for James Franco for slamming his co-star to the ground. I do see how the industry, they put a ton of energy into someone. They're a box office draw and it's like, how are you going to fire him for being an assaulter now? There's too much money wrapped up in it. But it's like, if someone is a fucking prick they don't get nicer when they get successful they're not like oh now that he has everything he wants he'll suddenly like treat women well like that's not what happens he gets power and then he has more power to treat people horribly and that's literally always the case that's always what happens and I don't understand why when someone is a nobody and they act like a fucking dirtbag they just get more chances because they're handsome like there's other handsome people there's so many handsome and talented people there have to be nice ones somewhere so obviously freaks and geeks gets canceled yeah it did one season it did one good season I do like that she calls out like everyone's like oh I've loved it from the beginning and she's like no you didn't because if you did the ratings would have been different (laughs) freaks and geeks is canceled she's just kind of bopping around auditioning for shit doing guest spots again later that year she tested for nine pilots and every single one of them she went to studio and network and she goes that's an absurd amount just so you know and I just want to go back to like the sparkly person that's why I think it didn't bug me when she said that because that is unusual I don't think you hear very many stories except for like Julia Roberts I think booked three rom-coms in a row her first year ever in New York City but like Julia Roberts is a sparkly person yes and I also think it's interesting that at the beginning of this book she kind of highlights that she's a glass half empty type of person Mm -hmm. and so I wonder if this book 
I feel like you're seeing the product of a lot of therapy in it yes. because she also says this one line that she loves auditioning. Most of the time, you're not going to get the part and that's just statistics. But if you can let go of the expectation, you can just enjoy the actual doing of the thing you love. Most actors don't act that much. A lot of it is like driving and waiting in your trailer and this and that. So the fact that an audition is just acting, she's like, enjoy that. And I'm like, okay, it does seem like you are a little positive. <laughs> so I have like eight things to say to that. Yeah. One, I really liked what she said about enjoying auditions because if me you too. love acting, you'll love the opportunity to act because it reminded me of how we always get mad at comics who hate open mics and think they're too good for it. And I'm like, look, if you're getting booked on enough shows to not have to do an open mic, good for you. But if you think you're too good for open mics and you'd rather not get up anywhere for a week than go to an open mic, then you don't actually like comedy. You like attention or whatever. Yeah. And so I did appreciate what she said about acting. It's funny that you say that because I actually pointed to this section about how she is such a glass half empty person. Really? Because in this sentence, she goes, I tested for nine pilots. That's an absurd amount, just so you know. So here, post-therapy, she's recognizing that that's an extremely lucky situation. Her first year ever, she gets freaks and geeks. Her second year, she tests for nine pilots. But then on the very next page, she talks about none of those ended up going to series. And she goes, am I too much? I don't know what to do other than be anything other than I was. What if no one wanted that again? What then? I'm not a quitter. I don't quit anything. All I could do was continue to audition, have meetings. And she was just like, what else is new? Because she didn't get something. And she's like, yet another audition. Nothing is working out. And then she goes on to be like, it's never going to work out for me. It's not fair. It felt like, when is it my turn? And it's like, bitch, it seems like it's like always your turn. I get that feeling though of like, but you're not actually in anything. So like, I understand what she's saying. I understand what you're saying and that she's clearly getting these near breaks, but none of them are breaking. I would say Freaks and Geeks is a break. I would say yeah. to have your first pilot season, have a show go to air for a season. I know that that like everyone wishes it had gone for two or three, but she was getting paid to right. be on NBC. So now it's been a year, but if none of them hit, then like having tested for nine pilots and nothing gets picked up you still don't have a job well now. she and does so I think she's not acknowledging because she will casually mention the indie film she's doing at this point because she talks about some random movie she did like in Wisconsin with somebody she has an audition for Scream that she says no to that she doesn't want to do it's not like she should pack it up and leave she has every sign in the world I'm to keep going she should pack it up and leave and I'm not saying she doesn't have the signs to keep going I'm just saying I do see how it gets frustrating and I think that like it seems negative but it also is like I know we're saying like one year she had this the next year she had these things but that's still like a year going by and I think that when you read it in a book and you're like okay she had this back to back with this back to back with this there's also like probably months that are happening in between where literally nothing is happening and I get that it objectively when you look at it things were happening but I think that when I have two weeks without a show I'm just like I'll never be booked again nothing is happening like I do see the emotional thing I, I, I get that but I don't care okay you, I could see how she's a glass half empty person it's like second place syndrome where like third place is easier to swallow than second place where things are constantly almost working out and so you can just see over that mountain and you're like wow I'm almost where things are working out swimmingly and you're like in this sea of actors and actresses like now at this point her contemporaries do have this extreme success yeah she has success yeah. compared to us but everyone around her like she's hanging out with the people from that 70s show she's hanging out with all these people who are like blowing the fuck up right now and so I do see how from our perspective what she has is amazing but I think from her perspective what she has is fucking fish food yeah that's true and I do think that starting off with a success like freaks and geeks will set you up to think anything less than that is not normal yeah but in reality 
most actors and actresses I think would say to get nine pilots in a pilot season is an extremely successful pilot season totally I think most people would not be frustrated I don't feel sorry for her I don't feel sorry for her I'm just saying I don't think that it's an insane thing to write now she's in this weird frustration period where she's not technically booking any jobs she's like doing well but she's not landing anything in her mind and Craig moves out to LA to try and make it work there. He still wants to be an actor and she and him kind of strike up a friendship again. She's still dating Colin and she does her usual thing where she makes out with someone else and it helps her realize that her relationship isn't working. So she breaks up with Colin Hanks for this dweeb. Craig. I hate a Craig. Busy is like a working actress. I know we're debating on how successful she was, but she is a working actress. She never had some like waitressing gig. Craig moves to LA and is working again at CPK, the only restaurant in America. (laughs) We love a CPK. So Craig is working at CPK and Busy ends up booking Dawson's Creek. Huge. At this time, Dawson's Creek is like the show of the century. And Craig makes this little crack. He says, we don't have to like start watching it now, do we? And it's like, get your head out of your fucking butthole, Craig. And this is where I do like love Busy's retrospectiveness. She goes, I didn't yet understand that Craig had a hard time being happy with about any of my success since his own feelings were that he was already a failure at age 21. She like stormed out of the table and cries. She's a big crier, it seems, which is fine, I guess. It's funny because she's like, my mom is so dramatic. Anyway, I was at the CPK just banging my head against the table because they didn't have the Asian chicken salad. (laughs) She also uses so much all caps for emphasis in this book. When we've been emphasizing words, it's because it's all caps. And so she'll be like, my mom was so dramatic. You will not believe the things she said to me. And I'm like busy. She also acknowledges that sometimes she's a bit overjudgmental about hunks. Like she says that it's really just like her instinct to like meet a hot actor boy and think he's a douchebag. She calls Chad Michael Murray a douchebag and she also apologizes for the fact that on a panel one time live she called him a douchebag because when she first met him that was just like her instinct about him even though every story that she tells about him in this book there's literally no evidence to the fact that Chad Michael Murray is a douchebag. So Dawson's Creek is the first time in her life she is told that her body is not good enough. Um bitch okay they film in wilmington north carolina and she's told by wardrobe hmm i think the trick with you will be to just accentuate your chest and push up your boobs and maybe show your legs and then try to hide from here she pointed right under my boobs to here she pointed right above my knees and then they go so i guess we'll have to cover up all these moles what have people done about it in the past and she's like uh what do you mean nobody's ever done anything and they go oh okay honey well i guess the network and producers don't like all these moles on you so we're supposed to cover them up and then she's on Dustin's Creek, where I guess Katie Holmes is considered the beauty of a generation here. <laughs> I, they love Katie Holmes. And they're like, at one point, she's doing a monologue, and they go, we don't even care that you keep fucking up. We'll just keep cutting to Katie's face. Look at that face. <laughs> and so it was like the first time that she was like shocked, and she was like, oh, no, I guess I have to lose weight. And here's the thing is, I have sympathy for women and what we go through. It's hard for me to have sympathy for this woman who was 22 years old and didn't know Hollywood was bodiest. What did that bitch think? I mean, that's just the game. And this was... 20 years ago I don't know what she thought lucky you that you made it till 22 not knowing that people cared about bodies I don't know god bless yeah she was a size six or eight she said and I'm like you were walking around Hollywood a size eight no problem not thinking anything of it we've seen the devil wears Prada we know that that wasn't the standard (laughs) and then you got more than most so she talks about coming in for the fifth season of this show the dynamic is strange the cast they've been sequestered in North Carolina together for now four full years. They all have a history, you know? She says it was clear that Joshua Jackson and James didn't really like each other. 
while Kate and Michelle were friendly, it didn't seem like they were very close. She also says that Josh really fancied himself one of the guys with the crew. He was like a mini George Clooney. He was really just like obsessed with being like, I'm one of you guys. I may be the shiny one on screen, but let me let me roll that rope for (laughs) you. Anyway, but she clicked with Michelle Williams pretty damn quick. So she was pretty miserable on set honestly she was like it sucked because this was like my dream job and she does those she's like I knew I should have been happy I was getting paid to be on this hit tv show she was playing Katie Holmes's college roommate and she's like but you're alone in North Carolina I missed my boyfriend I felt like I didn't fit in everybody else had it down pat and she's like I was in this interloper and so she talks about how she was just getting drunk all the time and this is where Chad Michael Murray comes in he's she's like one night we were getting particularly wasted at the bar and I dislocated my knee and I knew it right away and they had to call the hospital and she's like, I didn't want to tell the TV show because I didn't want them to be mad that I was drinking like this right before a shoot. And she said that Chad Michael Murray stayed with her at the hospital the entire night while they like relocated her knee because, and it took hours because they had to wait for her to fully sober up to give her drugs so that they could relocate her knee. She's like, I'm glad that there was no Perez Hilton because she's like, I used to be such a sloppy, sad little actress. And the fact that I was given the time to get my shit together in private without having like blogs. I don't know that she would have been blog fodder. I do think like she herself at her best wouldn't have been like I don't think her on a date with her husband would be blog fodder but I do think at her worst she would have yeah and then the next season in Dawson's Creek they wrote her character to become an alcoholic and she was like touche writers touche (laughs) while she's filming Dawson's Creek she's still dating Craig long distance she's trying to get back to LA as often as she can because I don't know I mean it seems like she's really taking responsibility for keeping this relationship alive and she flies back to LA because she has a, a long weekend off shooting And you'll never believe what happens next. It was 9-11. She's in LA. She has to get back to Wilmington to shoot. But all the flights are down, obviously. They call her and they're like, don't get on the plane. And she's like, I wasn't gonna. But she does end up having to fly back to North Carolina on September 13th. And they were like, you're entertainers. Your job is to keep people happy. The show must go on. And she's like, Jesus fucking Christ. But she does go on. So sometimes forget. She also like does have some good notes on perspective in this because I know that we've shit on her a little bit for like not acknowledging her levels of success, but she acknowledges that other people should have perspective. I don't know that she quite I found think it. she has more perspective than any other memoirist we've read so far, except for maybe Gabrielle Union. Yeah. So she says that they're having Thanksgiving dinner. The whole cast is all together and there's a whole bunch of tension and it seems like she's kind of on neutral territory since she came in late and has no drama with anybody. And James says to her, see, you got lucky. Your show was canceled after the first season. Basically to be like, look, there's no drama or tension between you guys because you haven't had to live together for six years. She says, I was so shocked by his complete lack of perspective. I was speechless. I mean, you all are the lucky ones here on season five of your hit TV show. Your lives were changed. No one gives a fuck who I was after my one season on Freaks and Geeks. So what if some of you guys have personality clashes? They were greenlighting movies. James had gotten a million dollars for Varsity Blues. Katie was working with huge directors. I do agree with that. It is kind of weird to be like, oh, you're so lucky that you don't have a hit on your hands. I do understand that weird thing when your dreams become your hell. And I've definitely yeah. experienced it with comics who get like late night writing gigs where it seems like your dream job and it makes like do the thing you love and you'll never love it again. <laughs> like a really great insight that someone that I don't even like had. But I think that people view success as a ladder, but it's actually several ladders. And then you had to get to the top of one ladder and then you get to climb down and you start at the bottom of the next ladder. And there's all these tiers of success that are different ladders and you can't complain to someone on a different ladder than you. That is so smart. 
I know. It is this thing where I think that I agree with both of their perspectives, but I do think overall James is in the wrong for complaining to someone on a different ladder than him. No, and it's funny because this is exactly what I was complaining about with Busy complaining to me, who would be so grateful to get all these pilots. That's the inherent problem of all memoirs, that by definition, you're complaining to somebody on a very different ladder. So she's wrapping up Dawson's Creek. I think it was overall a positive experience. I mean, she was on a TV show for two years and it was a hugely popular show. I know that they made her feel bad about herself, but being on a network teen drama is kind of where that's going to happen. She has this line here that I think is post-therapy busy. I wanted someone to tell me I was doing a good job. I wanted someone to tell me that I was pretty enough to be on the WB, even though I was on the fucking WB. Again, caps lock, her own. (laughs) That my body was good enough and didn't need to change or be hidden. That my moles were beautiful. That my acting was different than what they were used to, but it was fucking refreshing. But guess what? No one is going to tell you all the things you want to hear all the time. You have to know them yourself. This part, no one is going to tell you all the things you want to hear all the time. You have to know them yourself is it. Also, I think that part where she says waiting around for someone to tell me I'm pretty enough to be on the WB when you're on the WB. I think that is the glass half full, glass half empty mentality. Look around at your actual life and not like what you don't have and not what you want, but like what you're living. Don't think you're not good enough for the things you already have. (laughs) Start a gratitude list, baby. Anyway. I mean, no, literally. (laughs) I think it's so helpful. Okay, so Dawson's Creek wraps. She moves on. She's like auditioning for films here and there. She's dating Craig. Things are falling apart. She gets white chicks after refusing to audition for Scary Movie because she thought giving a fake blowjob to a ghost was humiliating and demoralizing, even though it then made Anna Faris a fucking star. It turns out the Wayans brothers do fucking love her because they put her in white chicks as the fat friend, which she's quite offended by. While she's up in Vancouver shooting this, obviously she's flying Craig back and forth to spend time with her. Craig comes up and they're hanging out one day watching ice skating. They're just kind of like hung over on the couch watching TV and there's ice skating on TV. She says they sat there tangled in the couch, hung over from the night before and watched a ridiculous package about one of the skaters. Seemed like a parody. The story was so dramatic and insane. I looked at Craig and laughed. This feels like a Ben Stiller movie, doesn't it? They created this idea where it's like two male figure skating partners and they're just laughing and laughing and being like, we should make this a movie. They like come up with this whole concept and she pitches it to Keenan Wayans for them. This is not one of the first times that she brings one of Craig or his brother Jeff's ideas to either her managers or agents, someone that she's working with. Craig is obsessed with his older brother, Jeff, the one that Busy made out with. And she basically says, you know, Keenan thinks it's a really fun idea, but he doesn't think it's a good idea for them. So, you know, and I pitched it to Mark and he thinks we should write it on spec. And Craig says, that's a really good idea. Jeff thinks it's a good idea, too. He wants to write it with us. This sort of initiates Busy being the third wheel on her own project. She's like, um, okay, I guess we can let him write it with us because she is like desperate to keep her relationship going and she has a real insecurity complex when it comes to Craig for some reason, even though she's the successful one. And she's like, I'm home in a week. Let's write it then. So she meets them at a bar and they come in and they're like, all right, don't be mad, but it was such a good idea that we wrote the whole outline without you. And she's like, what the fuck? And starts to cry. And she's like, was I just kicked out of something that was my idea? And Jeff goes, listen, you don't understand what a good idea this is. You can't be like trusted with it, basically. And then he does some crazy thing where he's like, I have an idea for a chick flick. You can have that instead. And she's like, no, we're going to write this all together. So then they go back to the drawing board on it. She basically makes them toss out the outline because it's their project. She's like, we're all writing it together. She does think to have it registered with the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America. And then what happens is it's her 25th birthday. Yeah, her golden birthday. 
her and Craig are dangling by threads. He's supposed to plan her a birthday, but instead he forgets. So like her and her roommate plan her birthday and then he forgets to take off work that day. So he shows up late and he also didn't get her a card or a gift. They break up the next day. The manager who's shopping the script around calls busy and is like, listen, really great things are happening for the boys. It looks way better if it's just the boys, these two brothers who came from out of nowhere, who had this great script. So they took your name off of it because like the narrative around it, if you're not a part of it, is a lot stronger to get the script sold. And there's a ton of interest in it. Busy flips the fuck out because her name is being taken off the script that she worked really hard on. And the origins of it were her idea. She tries to move on because she doesn't really know what to do. Finally, they come back and like sheepishly are like, hey, we're going to put your name on it. We just think it's a nice thing to do. And she says she thinks it's because their lawyers couldn't figure out how to get out of putting her name on it because she had already registered it with the WGA and there was such a paper trail. Obviously, this movie gets made. Blades of Glory. Ever heard of it? It ends, though, with her eventual husband, Mark. She's dating him by the time the movie premieres. And he's like, you have to go. She goes to the premiere. And she has a great time. She's hanging out with Amy Poehler, who's like, I heard the whole story. Fuck those guys. Fuck what they did to you. She gets to sit with all the cast from the office who are there to support Jenna Fisher. And she says she finally goes over to say hi to Craig and Jeff. And they're sitting alone in the back table with their dad. And we looked it up. It doesn't seem like they went on to do literally anything else. So let's talk about Mark, Busy's now husband. After she and Craig break up, she just kind of starts seeing this guy around town. And she thinks he's hot or something which is kind of confusing they're both smokers so they're always just like outside kind of catching up and then one night she sees him at a party she goes over to talk to him and he's like I'm having this birthday party with Lizzie Kaplan you should come also maybe we could hang out on purpose too Mm -hmm. so they start going on dates they get serious pretty quickly he has this trip to Tulum coming up that he cuts short to come home for her birthday And her friends are like, if he cuts his trip to Tulum short and makes it to your birthday party, you have to marry him. And she's like, absolutely. It's not without red flags. One is that he actually reminds her she had auditioned for one of his pilots in the past. She made a comment about how much she loved the music that was included in the screenplay. And he's like, that was me. And then she goes, wait a minute. Didn't you create that pilot with your wife? And he goes, well, we were engaged. We broke it off, but she's still my writing partner. Yeah, and I'd also like to point out that this chapter that she meets him in is called Your Ex-Lover is Dead, which is like some real emo freak shit, but I love that. (laughs) It's not fun to have your boyfriend's ex-wife be his business partner. I can only imagine how when we break up and stop being friends, my new best friend will feel very intimidated by you. I think that's like a different situation. I think that's like... I think that's like when I start dating someone, he'll be really intimidated by you because you're my (laughs) ex-husband. Mark is about nine years older than her. And what intrigues her about him is how adult he is. He owns his own home. He seems much more established in the Hollywood community. But of course, as we all know, Taylor's oldest time. She's 26. He's 35. When a man is nine to 10 years older than you, he's going to make you hang out with all of his friends. He's going to refuse to hang out with your friends. And you're always going to feel uncomfortable around his friends because they're all going to be getting married and having a baby. And you're going to still want to be getting blacked out all the time. Because you are a baby. I read this and I was like, ugh, I don't really like Mark. And then I kept not liking Mark. And then I kept waiting for the Mark redemption arc. And I waited quite some time. Busy, as I've said, is good about going back and kind of re-acknowledging the true narrative. Like there's her narrative and then there's her perspective as an adult who's been to therapy. She even acknowledges that her own friends said something like, Mark doesn't like us. He thinks he's too cool and smart to hang out with us. And I kept waiting for her to be like, so I finally confronted Mark about this. And when he realized he was being an asshole, he changed. And I appreciated that. But that never really comes. So let's get into it. So 
she and Mark date for a while. They're obviously getting super serious. Eventually, he proposes. She gets pregnant. They buy a house, blah, blah, blah. He is like pretty hands off with everything important. It really felt LA to me the way that he is like this absolute man child. Yeah. And then on top of that, he just doesn't seem very nice to her. First red flag, of course, is that he doesn't ever want to hang out with her friends. And then it never really seems to come up that that's a problem. And then the next is when she gets pregnant and has her first daughter, Birdie. She talks about how she was obsessed with not having an epidural and having a natural birth, which I'm just like, whatever. I like hate the stigma around having an epidural. There's no other surgery where people would be like, let's not use medicine to the best of our ability. But so she's in there and she has a really tough time giving birth to her like nine pound, 12 ounce baby. And at one point she goes, I looked at Mark. I was in so much pain. I wanted the drugs. I needed the drugs. This was too much pain. I looked at Mark. I need the drugs. I can't do this. I have to have the drugs. And then he goes, okay, I'll get them to get you the drugs. But I want to just say this. If you don't take them, everyone was right. You couldn't do it on your own. I looked at him with true fire in my eyes. Fuck you. Of course I can do this on my own. He goes, I know you can. And I go, okay. And then she went on and did it. I'm sorry. If Mackenzie looked at me and said, while I'm giving birth and I'm in so much unimaginable pain, okay, but you're a loser. You're a quitter. (laughs) I would kill him. I would kill him. But then the baby's born. She talks about being at home and how hard it was for her afterwards. She had so much weight to lose. She had gained like 80 pounds, honestly, with the baby. And she had to get back to work. She was booked for Party Down, actually. And they had this idea that her character would lose weight when they got to L.A. because it's about struggling actors. And they thought it was actually very realistic that her character could come and get really skinny in L.A. And the network said she was still too fat. They didn't like that idea. And they ended up booking Lizzie Kaplan, which I think must have been especially painful because she is one of her husband's like party friends. Yeah. fight they had in their relationship was that they always had a joint party and Busy's birthday is five days before his. And he would not let her join. Yeah. She says, back home, I tried to be calm, but I had a very hard time. I didn't want anyone holding Birdie except for me and maybe Leanne, her sister. She goes, Mark was useless. He didn't even try. I felt like I had to essentially force the baby on him in order for him to hold her. And after a while, I didn't even care if he did. And then they talk about the first time they went out to a party, like when Birdie was only a couple months old. She's like, Mark immediately left me when we got to the party. And when I found him smoking with Lizzie Kaplan and some guy friends of his, he was in the middle of saying, yeah, it's amazing. She's such a good baby. And really, our lives haven't changed at all. Meanwhile, Busy was like losing her fucking mind. Also, it was the WGA strike. I don't know if you guys remember that. So her husband is a writer. He's obviously not making any money. She is an actress who's too fat to be on TV. So she's clearly not making any money. They also had each owned their own house when they got married. And so when they had this baby, they bought a house they could share. He sold his house. She had bought her house at the top of the market. And I guess this was right around the recession because apparently she owed more on that house than it was worth. So she ended up having to sell it at a major loss. Then she gets Cougar Town and she's finally able to start earning again. He's working on some projects. So that's good. She goes out with Courtney one day and Courtney insists she goes. Courtney Cox. Yes, sorry. Courtney Cox from Cougar Town. You may know her from a sitcom called Cougar Town and nothing mm-hmm. else. Courtney actually insists that she go to get a therapist because she's like, I think you have postpartum depression. <laughs> and sure enough, she does. She gets put on Zoloft. And it really helps her. Mark still sucks, but Mark gets worse, okay? She decides that she wants a second baby. They had had this baby thinking they were one and done, but watching Birdie grow up, their first daughter's name is Birdie, which is, you know, weird, but kind of cute in my opinion. And she... She's like, you know what? I really just like need her to have a second one. Mark says, if we do this, it's all on you. You have to hire all the help you need. I'll take care of Birdie. But seriously, I don't think this is the best idea. I just want to say that. 
I mean, this is not a puppy. I just can't even imagine thinking that you could have a biological child in your home. (laughs) And like, you're like, not that one. (laughs) I'm not raising that one. It's so fucked up. Also, I, I really appreciate her honesty in this book, but I do wonder like what it would feel like to read that as the kid. I think like one of the big points about writing all of this is most of her fame comes from her being vulnerable and oversharing on Instagram stories. And she's kind of saying there is this whole channel that I wasn't telling you guys about. And that was my relationship troubles. And so I do admire that she's coming clean about it now. But I also feel like for the kid's sake, maybe this is like a really complicated thing to come clean about. And the details are maybe not ones you should have shared, like him not wanting the kid. And then they start to fall apart as a couple. And she talks about how when he talks to her, he's so belittling. He thinks she's stupid. When they're out at parties, it doesn't seem like he wants to talk to her at all. And then when they're together, he doesn't talk to her. After she has the second kid, she leaves him. So a month after the 2016 election, she tells Mark she wants a divorce. And she like goes through this period where she's just falling down all the time. And she recognizes now it was just a psychological need for him to notice her. And she thinks about divorce. And basically, Michelle is like, if you can keep your family together, do it. And her therapist is like, divorce will fuck up your kids. And Mark is like, give me a chance to make this better. Not only do they go to couples therapy, but Mark goes to therapy on his own, which is where he really makes some breakthroughs. And she says it really changed him. And it changed the way he talked to her. And then one of the most upsetting lines I thought was, oh, God, she noticed when he stopped talking to her like she was an idiot. Her daughter stopped talking to her like she was an idiot. And she says, for a long time, Bertie also talked to me like I was an idiot. And I figured that's just what girls did with their moms. It was certainly how I talked to my mom growing up. But once Mark changed, so did she. I sobbed in therapy that I had allowed it for so long. Of course, my daughter treated me the way she saw her dad treated me. I just never made the connection. But it seems like they're all together now and better. And at the end of this book, this is where it gets really heartbreaking. This is why you never write a book too early. It ends with her and her mom and her sister. The whole family goes on this Disney cruise and Busy decides instead of being a little snobby cunt about a Disney cruise, they're going to just embrace it and have fun. And she says, everyone had fun. We had the most fun of our lives and we just really enjoyed each other. And when I got home, I realized I'm going to have a talk show. And I looked to my husband and I go, I'm going to be the first woman late night host. I mean, she did get a talk show. Oh God. And how quickly did it cancel? Pretty quick. As much as I hate exercise class, she was at a soul cycle class and she had a soul cycle teacher screaming this at her. She says, I'm not saying you haven't been in the waiting room before. I'm not saying that you don't deserve to skip the waiting room altogether, but here you are and you need to be grateful in that waiting room because that door is about to open. And if you're not sitting there in grace, your name will not be called. Be grateful in that waiting room. I feel like for where I'm at in my life, I was like, okay, I will. (laughs) But anyway, so at the end of the day, what did you think of our girl Biz? I loved her. I really liked her. I was going to say that I feel like she is the first, maybe the second memoirist that I like would want to have a meal with I do think though that before you can write anything honestly you have to to emotionally have come to terms with it and I think that like the reason she's so good at all the teenage stuff is I do think she got through it in therapy I would love to hear the story of the husband in 10 years when it's worked itself out one way or the other either they're gonna get divorced or or she's just gonna settle for whatever he calls fixed but I do think that when you start to see like the beautiful little arc it's like and then he went to therapy and we all went on a Disney cruise and we had fun and I got my dream job when everything has to be wrapped up in a bow like that I start to be like "Mm, let's keep digging busy but I just don't think she can because it hasn't been enough time yeah there's definitely more story here I also really love this one part where she calls out a producer of Modern Family who was pretty rude to her at this Mm -hmm. event that chapter ends with her running into him as this book is being written and she says like hey just so you know you were really mean to me one time and it's in my book and the fact that she does say that to his face was like respect bitch (laughs) 
And I think that it's also really interesting because I'm pretty sure that when she was doing her TV show or like right before she got it, she announced that she was no longer acting. And so I wonder if she's always been a loose with the names kind of gal or if she was like, I'm not even trying to be an actress anymore. So like, who the fuck cares? Do you know what happened with Kelly Oxford? I am vaguely fascinated by Kelly Oxford. Are you talking about the falling out? Yeah. I would literally kill to know. Because I do think it seems like Busy Phillips is a real ride or die. And so it's got to be Kelly's fault. I think Kelly Oxford is a real climb and cut. Ooh, I just invented that baby. phrase. That's a good phrase. Right? I love a climb and cut. <laughs> There's a ride or die or a climb and cut. Well, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm so excited. I love you all so much. I love you.